Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. I'm about to come down on this dude like Thor's hammer Mjolnir. I'm about to go Mjolnir on his ass. Iron Throne. It's the Iron Throne. Yes. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. I'm Trisha Bobita. I'm Greta Johnson. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. Those clips are from the most recent episode of Parks and Recreation, which if you haven't seen it yet, you really, really ought to. Parks and Rec is maybe the best show on TV depicting adult nerds, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. There's a writer from NPR who wrote a blog post about why Parks and Rec is good for nerds and good for America. And we have a link to that at nerdatpodcast.com. I love also that patriotism is the ultimate altruism because it kind of fits with Parks and Rec and Leslie Nope's ridiculous love of government in all of the ways. Nerds, if you're not watching this show, I promise you, they love Game of Thrones as much as you do. We also wanted to give you a taste of one more clip from that episode of Parks and Rec. This is John Hodgman. Ms. Nope, I understand you're here today to try to convince us that this disastrous merger of our two towns was in any way a good idea. Yes, there were some bumps and bruises and a brief rash of arson and a rather large-scale brawl at the dump. But overall, the state of the merger is very strong. Scoff. Did you just say the word scoff? You must admit, Ms. Nob, that the merging of the towns has been fraught with antipathy. For example, I now have to share my studio with a fatuous twerp who shall remain nameless. This twerp has a name, and it's August Ngutu Leibowitz Clementine. This show has jokes for public radio nerds, for Game of Thrones nerds. All sorts of nerds, welcome and adored on the show Parks and Rec. Great for nerds, great for America. You'll find that link at nerdatpodcast.com. So coming up this week, we're going to talk with Dr. Deanna Bark. She's been working on a project that maps the connections between the thinks and the feels in the human brain. That's the technical term, right? The thinks and the feels. Yeah, and feels has a Z at the end, just in case you can't tell. Right, yeah, because it's from the Latin root. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But first, we're going to talk with documentary director Amy Elliott. Her first film, World's Largest, is about roadside attractions in the U.S., and it's amazing. Think World's Largest Ball of Yarn or World's Largest Frying Pan. (laughs) Her most recent film is called Wicker Kittens, and it's about the competitive world of jigsaw puzzles. I love jigsaw puzzles. 
I feel like the way you expressed that was relatively calm, but it is in great contrast to the feels that you have about this. It is. Jigsaw puzzles were a family affair in my house growing up. The one I remember most vividly was one that almost tore my family apart. (laughs) (laughs) See, my solution to jigsaw puzzle angst is a pair of scissors. What does that even mean? The piece doesn't fit, but it so easily could. Like, let's just make this happen, people. That's sort of my take on the jigsaw puzzle. You actually cut apart? No, but I always wish I could. Like, that's that's the problem-solving technique that I would like to employ. So you're the take the stickers off the Rubik's Cube kid, too, then, huh? (laughs) Yeah, Rubik's Cubes. There's no point in spending time on the Rubik's Cube. You just put new color stickers (laughs) on. Exactly. Look, it's a rainbow. (laughs) No, but the thing about communal jigsaw puzzles is that competitive people, I think, sometimes struggle with not being the one to put in the last piece or get that one corner that they'd really been working on for a while. And the one that I remember most vividly is a giant poster-sized jigsaw puzzle. It's a Norman Rockwell painting and it's a few umpires, baseball umpires, and it's about to start raining. But the center of this, because what umpires wear is black with black and black, is just black. (laughs) It's just, there's no context clues. It's just black. And I really thought that we were never going to finish this. But then when we did, we glued that sucker together and it hung on the wall. Of course it was about baseball too. That's perfect. (laughs) Of course. So yeah, jigsaw puzzles, it involves all sorts of nerdery and strategery, so we couldn't help ourselves. We thought this would be a great topic for Nerdette. And so did our film nerd buddy, Joe Uchel. He called up Amy Elliott and talked to her a little bit about Wicker Kittens. We follow four of the top teams as they prepare for and compete ultimately in the contest. The first one, I guess, is the Dark Horse team, and they're a group of middle-aged ladies uh, who probably are better at drinking wine and palling around than actually competing. (laughs) The reigning champions who are much more hardcore and disciplined. The family team, and that's, it really is a, a kind of a family project. And then the challengers who are a little overmatched in skill, let's say, but not in their desire to win. Jigsaw puzzles don't seem like the kind of thing that people would get really competitive about, but It got really intense. Like, you follow all of them at practices. The champions had tryouts. Oh, yeah. Well, so did the challengers. I think that the Dark Horse team didn't really. I don't think the family team did either, since it was family. There was a family connection. But the challengers and the champions, they absolutely both had tryouts for that team. The challengers actually seemed really worried that you were going to inadvertently leak all of their secrets to the other teams. Well, you know, it's funny. I think the challengers were the most vocal, the most, you know, the most candid about being nervous about revealing secrets on camera. But none of the teams let us film the night before practice. We spent a lot of time, you know, filming these teams practicing. But I did get the sense that the night before, when everybody was sort of in there and working out the kinks and talking about their last minute strategies, we were not invited to any of the night before practices. And I think that was part of that was the suspicion that, you know, the hand might be tipped. One of the things that I loved about making the film was learning about the different strategies that the teams had. And they did, you know, which was surprising to me. But each one absolutely had a game plan going into the big event. They weren't super sophisticated. You know, putting a jigsaw puzzle together isn't, you know, exactly skinning a cat. But but tactics were discussed uh, ad nauseum at times, and they were employed during the big day. I mean, they basically came down to things like who does the edge, how much time do you spend sorting, 
making sure you shift positions if you get stuck, things around those lines. But there was one in particular that I'd, I'd love to talk about for a second, if, if you don't mind the minutia of this. Oh, yeah, go. Uh, the minutia is the best part. Okay. Yeah. Um, but one that I think absolutely impacted the results of the contest and was really fun to watch it unfold was sorting the pieces by shape, not by pattern or color. The puzzle, the competition puzzle was a snow scene. It was, you know, snowmen and kids sledding, winter fun, that kind of thing. And the sky was pure white. And everybody did all the recognizable parts first. And there were three teams that were really neck and neck until they all hit what was left, which was the sky. And it was just all pure white. And the winning team had already had one of their players split off and line up and organize those white pieces by shape. And they were sitting there all cataloged, and that absolutely made the difference. They pulled ahead for good. Once everyone hit the top spot, the winning team was off. They just left everybody else in the dust. And I thought that was really kind of fun to watch come to life. Leading up to the competition, you get to see how big a part of the lives of the competitors puzzling has become. They have these huge multi-room libraries devoted to jigsaw collections. There's a scene in the film where we sort of go in and we're introduced. A lot of the top competitors come here to look at this guy. He has done all these puzzles, not particularly expensive puzzles. They're not vintage wooden puzzles or anything like that. It's not like the puzzles have an enormous amount of value, but they're enormous in terms of size. Some are 10,000 pieces. And he's spent years, his wife actually has spent, you know, years assembling these puzzles. And then when they're done with them, they framed them and put them all over their house. And so they become art on the walls. My favorite is the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And the fact that it's actually on the ceiling. Where else would it possibly be except actually on the ceiling? Because if you think about it, this isn't in the film, but we talked about it a lot with him. They had to get a piece of plexiglass cut. Actually mounting it was really hard and putting it upside down onto that and then drilling it into the ceiling. Because, you know, once they take that down, they're just all these pieces are going to fall. I just think it's, you know, I feel bad for whoever buys their house. This is actually your second documentary about people who are masters of really, really esoteric things. Your first documentary was world's largest about those roadside attractions, like the world's largest frying pan. But your work's a lot less like a Christopher Guest mockumentary than it could be. You're very sympathetic to the people in your movie and treat it less like something that is eminently make fun ofable and more like a misunderstood art. It's quirky, to say the least, to dedicate this much time and effort to a fairly obscure pursuit, but I really relate to it. I find all the characters in both Wicker Kittens and, for the most part, World's Largest 2, very relatable. I mean, I, I feel like that's kind of what we all do to a certain degree, whether it's spending years of your life making an independent film that only a handful of people will ever see or practicing for months for a jigsaw puzzle contest or planning a giant fiberglass strawberry to sort of show off your town. It's about how we fill our days. And the different ways that people choose to do that really interest me. In the case of the jigsaw puzzling, I mean, I'm not implying, and I, and I don't think the film suggests in any way that there's any you know, great profundity to this activity, but the motivation behind it and all these things are kind of universal. You know, just coming down to what do we allocate our free time to? How do we make our own fun? So it's all filling the same void? Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Documentaries are my building a giant uh, concrete buffalo, my practicing for a jigsaw puzzle contest. <laughs> They're absolutely, absolutely. Thanks to Joe Uchel and Amy Elliott. You can check out the Wicker Kittens trailer at nerdatpodcast.com. The documentary premieres this weekend at South by Southwest. You know what else premieres at South by Southwest, Trisha? 
a lot of annoying apps, but what? What else? <laughs> Veronica Mars. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited about this. The full-length movie. It's going to be so good. This <laughs> My expectations are irrationally high, but that's okay because it's Veronica Mars. My hopes are high as well. And I'm excited for this because the people have spoken and I like on-demand entertainment that is the public demanding something <laughs> and us getting it. It's also a really good sign that everyone from the TV show has signed on to do the movie. So hopefully it means that it's just going to be a beautiful masterpiece. This was the most important clue for us about how good the new Arrested Development was going to be when it came out on Netflix last year was that everyone was coming back, which meant to me primo stuff. And it was. It was good. Exactly. But anyway. Now it's time to talk about your brain and my brain. Everybody's brain. All of the brains. You're probably familiar with the Human Genome Project, which mapped human DNA and is doing all kinds of incredible things for science because they opened up that information and let researchers from everywhere sort of have at it. Well, Deanna Bark is working on a project that is doing the same thing about the connections in the human brain. She's a professor of psychology, psychiatry, and radiology at Washington University in St. Louis. And she's working right now on the Human Connectome Project. Deanna Bark's work mapping the human brain got onto our radar thanks to our science contributor, Sarah Rand. She joins us for this conversation. We like to think of it as trying to map out the highways and byways of the human brain. The National Institute of Health has given you a bunch of money to work on this for five years. What are you hoping to find? A lot of the work in animals had suggested that it's really the pattern of connections among brain regions that seem to shape a lot of behavior that we see in animals. And we'd started to look at that in humans, but we didn't have the technology until recently to try to really do that in detail. When I first looked at the image, it kind of reminded me of like a mass of rainbow-colored koosh balls. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, that's very true. I, I think of it sometimes also like the stress ball that you see sometimes where things pop out in different directions. It reminds me of that. Or some cool sea creature at the bottom of the ocean Deanna, what do you see when you look at these maps of the brain? One of the most important things that we're looking at is what are called the white matter tracks in the brain. The technique we use is called diffusion imaging, and it basically measures the direction that water is traveling in the brain. You can almost think of it like a trough along which water can flow. And so when you have nice, strong, thick white matter tracks, the water tends to flow in the direction of those white matter tracks. And when you don't have white matter tracks or there's something wrong with them, the water tends to flow out in all different directions, or we say it diffuses in different directions. And so what we do with our diffusion imaging is we measure lots of different directions of water diffusion in the brain. But with this new project, Deanna, your team isn't just looking at the simple pathways where water is moving in one direction. You can see now some of the brain's most complicated intersections. Well, you can think of there are parts of the brain that are like these very complex interchanges that you see in New York and L.A. and Chicago, where there's lots of roads that are coming in together and then going out in different directions. And some of the older techniques for looking at white matter structures in the brain got confused when you got to those interchanges because they would maybe follow a white matter track into the interchange but then couldn't figure out where it came out on the other end, and so therefore didn't know where else it was going in the brain. These newer techniques that we're using allow us to actually keep following those tracks as they go through those interchanges and come out on the other end so that you can really see all the different pathways in the brain. And so what we're trying to do now that we do have that technology, 
was to do very, very, very high-resolution, very detailed maps, and then to do a lot of data processing after so that we can develop online tools that would let you do things like, you know, click on one point of the brain and see the pathways or the roads that lead from that point of the brain to another point of the brain. Let's talk a little about how you are creating this map. It's 1,200 people's brains you're scanning to kind of come up with this. How does that work, finding 1,200 people to let you map their brain? One of our collaborators is a guy named Andrew Heath, and he actually started some projects a number of years ago recruiting families in the Missouri area, and in particular families who had children that were either identical or fraternal twins. So we're actually recruiting our participants primarily from these families in Missouri that have been participating in research for a number of years. And we're recruiting, ideally, families where there are four children who are in our age range. And ideally, of those four children, two of them would be either identical or fraternal twins. They are the most wonderful people in the world. I can't emphasize how much this project would not be happening if it was not for these great participants. I mean, they're just really wonderful people. So we understand that your areas of study, just from looking at your prolific writing, you've written so much on these topics of schizophrenia and depression. So how does this project, the Human Connectome Project, contribute um, to the treatment of these issues? This specific data that we're acquiring isn't in and of itself going to tell us how to treat or what causes schizophrenia or depression. But I think it's going to give us some good clues because one of the things that we're going to look very carefully at is even among what we would say are healthy individuals, what are the variations in brain connectivity, either in terms of white matter tracts or this kind of functional connectivity? How does it predict individual differences in mood, stress responses, personality, uh, memory, thinking? Um, We think those are dimensions that are relevant to us understanding uh, why people kind of have problems that are on the very sort of extreme end of that, right? So people who have depression, you know, they're having really serious mood problems, you know, very sad, very down. But even, you know, quote-unquote healthy people have variation in mood over time and across individuals. So we're using this data to try to first get clues as to what network um, and what connections in the brain seem to be related to those kinds of individual differences that we think are relevant to understanding people who have clinical disorders. And then our next step is going to be to take these methods and tools and the data that we're acquiring in healthy folks and then now go into folks who have these illnesses to test ideas and hypotheses about how difficulties with the connections among certain brain regions might be contributing to folks who have schizophrenia and depression. And one of the things that we'll probably do is use this information to look, for example, early on in life, developmentally, to see if we can understand who's at risk for developing depression or schizophrenia, because we know if we can intervene early before people develop the illness, there's a whole host of bad outcomes for that individual you can prevent from ever happening, and you can, you know, push them on a pathway to healthy development. So in a way, this first step of mapping people who don't have documented serious problems with either depression or schizophrenia, other mental health issues, you're creating a control so that you can move forward. Is that, right. would that be a correct right. way of explaining yeah. it? Yep, yeah, exactly. Although I would still argue that even amongst those of us that we would say are healthy individuals, there's lots of variation in levels of depression and anxiety and other things. And so it's a control for sure, but I think those are still variations in behavior 
and brain function that are relevant for how people do in the everyday world. So we're hoping that not only is it just a control, but also really giving us hints about even more severe forms of psychiatric problems. I mean, there's so much data there. It must almost be overwhelming, right? And the data you're collecting as a part of this project will be freely accessible once it's done. That's pretty unique. Yeah, and it's not even once we're done. It's already available. It's one of the first projects to do this, although to give credit where credit is due, the genetics folks have really spearheaded this idea of public access and public release of data. Literally anyone who wants to can have access to a certain amount of data that is very carefully cleaned up and screened to protect the privacy of the participants who've been in the study. Then there's a second tier of access for people who are associated with some sort of scientific institution, and they can have access to more detailed data. There's so many clever people in the world who have very different approaches to analysis, and we certainly don't have all the great ideas. And so making it available, like true discovery science, really hoping that someone will come up with something really clever and creative. And it's also just the right way to treat the resources. The American people are funding this, and it shouldn't be held just by a select few people. I mean, it really should be available to the whole scientific community because that's the best way to use these resources. Thanks to Dr. Deanna Bark for talking with us. If you want to see pictures of some of these brain images, they're really remarkable. They're kind of rainbowy cushy. You can find them on our website, nerdatpodcast.com. Time now for homework. Greta, you first. This week I have some very serious homework, but I feel like I say that every time. And it's <laughs> actually not all that serious, but it is pretty intense. If you guys haven't been watching the HBO show True Detective, now is the time. The final episode airs this coming Sunday, which means that you have seven hours that you get to binge on until then. This is a really great miniseries. It takes place in the South. It's extremely suspenseful and quite creepy. But because it's a miniseries, it is a self-contained story. And the storyline has been really fun to sort of uncover as these detectives do. The detectives are played by Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, who's acting in this show, just got him an Oscar, right? That's how they work. (laughs) It couldn't have hurt that he's doing such incredible work, he and Woody, on the HBO show True Detective. I'm loving it as well. It's very dark. Be careful watching it before you go to bed on Sunday night. It will make the shadows on your wall seem a little spookier. One of my favorite things about the show is the rapport between Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. Here's a little excerpt of them. What do you think the average IQ of this group is, huh? Can you see Texas up there on your high horse? What do you know about these people? Just observation and deduction. See a propensity for obesity, poverty, a yen for fairy tales. Folks putting what few bucks they do have in the little wicker baskets being passed around. I think it's safe to say that nobody here is going to be splitting the atom, Marty. True Detective on HBO. Go watch it now. Our other piece of homework this week comes from Deanna Bark, who's mapping the human brain for all of us and wants you to do this. If you haven't gone to your local science center recently, go, because they almost all have great, super interesting projects about the brain Frequently, they have hands-on tools. You can pick up plastic brains and other things and and really get up close and comfortable with human brain information. And I think that's such a great way to just make a closer connection to it. Thanks again to Deanna for talking with us. You can find links to all her work at nerdatpodcast.com. 
And of course, one more optional assignment for you that will get you a gold star for sure is leaving a voicemail for Nerd Out Podcast. That's 312-600-5638. Hey, it's Ed from Minneapolis. In the Lady Robot segment you guys talked about recently, you mentioned Battlestar Galactica as a prime source for new Lady Robot villains. And I was wondering if you guys had looked into the preponderance of uh, Lady Robot villains in video games as well. For example, there's GLaDOS in the Portal video games, voiced by Ellen McLean, who also did a similar role in Pacific Rim as the computer voice there, although much less villainous one. Uh, her role was a little bit more comedic. It was almost kind of a parody of AI robot lady villains. But in this case, it was specifically a parody of, there was an even earlier video game, uh, System Shock 2, and the original System Shock, uh, which had a villain called Shodan, who was an evil AI robot lady. In both cases, they used a lot of interesting voice filters and pitches and electronic distortion to make them sound extra creepy and villainous, and uh, I think it definitely holds up. Uh, give those a listen. See what, uh, see what you think about the classic robot lady villains. Uh, anyway, love the show. <laughs> Thanks for that insightful comment. You nerds should be calling us too. Tell us about great lady nerds of history you want to hear more about. Tell us about things that you're obsessing over these days. 312-600-5638. That's it for this week. Thanks to our guests, Amy Elliott, director of the documentary Wicker Kittens. How much fun is it to say Wicker Kittens? Pretty fun. And thanks to Deanna Bark, professor at Washington University in St. Louis, working on the Human Connectome Project. <laughs> thanks also to our contributor, Joe Uchel. Thanks also to Nerd at Science correspondent, Sarah Rand. And thanks to you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw us some stars on iTunes if you're feeling generous. Our theme is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Thanks to our home stations, WBEZ and WCQS. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.